Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. I'll leave it for future studies to look at whether there have been war crimes or not, but there's certainly not been military success in any way that can be justified in military terms, and it's certainly not something that can be justified in terms of international law and um, humanitarian outcomes, and it actually you know, is not justifiable in terms of where Israel needs to get to for its own peace and security. We are in the middle of an information war, not just fog of war, but deliberate exchanges of disinformation from all the, all the sides. But you can't say uh, that when you've got near on 12,000 people dead uh, and 5,000 of them are children, uh, that that is somehow proportionate to the, the threat posed and somehow is a price that needs to be accepted. I also worry that w- this will fuel another round, another cycle of global terrorism involving, yes, jihadi groups, but, but also perhaps somehow energizing far-right groups and other groups. My guest today is Professor Greg Barton, who is a prominent Australian academic specialising in global Islamic politics, with a particular focus on countering violent extremism. Greg's academic career spans roles at Deakin University, where he is currently based, the Asia-Pacific Centre for Security Studies, and Monash University. Greg's expertise, particularly in the context of Islamic thought, positions him as a leading voice on issues of terrorism and extremism, as well as the development of interventions to counter them. As a prolific author, Greg has contributed significantly to academic journals and books, offering deep insights into the convergence of religion, politics, and societal challenges. This is Greg's second appearance on the show. Last time he joined me was on episode 81, where we discussed the process of radicalization generally. On that occasion, we used the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the COVID pandemic, as well as far-right extremism as the vehicle for our discussion. Today, Greg joins me for a follow-up with a particular focus on the events unfolding in the Middle East and their impacts globally. Greg, welcome back to The Voices of War. Great to be back. Thanks very much, Maz. Now, uh, I'll create a link to our previous episode uh, in the show notes. Uh, so for anybody who hasn't come across your work, uh, they can go and listen to that and get a much deeper sense and background of, uh, of your career and uh, how you've come to do what you do. But perhaps it might be useful for those uh, listening now uh, to just give us a kind of quick wave tops of your career to date and what you've been working on. Sure. I mean, long story short, um, I, I began a PhD in 1988 uh, looking at progressive Islamic thought in Indonesia, and it was um, a movement of thought that contributed to not just uh, change in religious thinking, but to democratic reform. Um, one of the figures I looked at, Abdurrahman Wahid, became president. I wrote a biography, his biography when he was, when he was president. Um, and I'd come to that, I think, because I tried um, studying aeronautical engineering. I enjoyed the engineering. I wasn't very good with the math. I I'd spent a year abroad uh, as an exchange student with Rotary in India, and I think that drew me back to Asia. Um, and so once I, I came to Monash, did an undergraduate degree looking at um, Southeast Asian studies uh, and was offered a scholarship, um, 
I had no intention of a career in academia, but I sort of fell into it. I, you know, I've been very lucky. <laughs> I think the choice of the PhD topic um, has served me well. I've been very fortunate. Um, it's drawn me into close, lasting relations in Indonesia. And for a long time, I was really happy focusing on on progressive Islamic thought, democratic reform, civil society. But the 9-11 attacks made me realize I needed to also look at something I paid attention to but but not focused on, which was extremist thought um, in, in Muslim communities. So I, I then wrote a book uh, about Jamaat Islamia. Of course, there was that major attack, uh, October 12th, 2002, uh, in Bali, which saw 88 Australians killed, but uh, 102, uh, 202 lives lost. Uh, really tragic turn, but it, it's all good cooperation between Australia and Indonesia, um, first of all through the police on counterterrorism and then through civil society on, on countering violent extremism. And, and that's a space I've been active in uh, ever since. Um, it's a space I enjoy not because I necessarily like looking at extremism, but because the people working to counter extremism are, are generally really um, very principled, driven by uh, a, a down-to-earth idealism that they want to prevent bad things happening to the community, help people who've gotten into trouble with rehabilitation, and, you know, just try and build a better society. And, you know, of course, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, most of these uh, most of these civil society groups are inspired by Islam. Some of them are from other backgrounds. But um, in, in a sense, that squares the circle for me in, in going back to looking at uh, progressive Islamic thought and, and civil society activism. Mm. Um, but I do at times wish that uh, we could all leave behind this um, decades of focus on violent extremism. But we can't, of course, because it's, it's not going away. It's mm. in a bit of a... Um, uh, a lull at the moment, at least from a Western perspective, not not from an African perspective where Al-Qaeda and Islamic State are very active. Uh, but things are coming around and sad to say the tragedy of that terrorist attack uh, on um, uh, October 7th, um, you know, a de- deliberate prov- provocation by Hamas uh, not only is, is, is reaping a, a terrible bitter harvest in Gaza, but is likely to reverberate around the world and likely to be used by uh, extremist mm. groups to try and generate support. Mm. And that's uh, absolutely a key feature of uh, today's discussion that I hope to touch on uh, because you're absolutely right. That's what we, we're already seeing, the, the kind of uh, uh, the, the flames being fanned uh, across the world uh, and we're forced to take one side uh, over the next. But perhaps we can focus in on that 7th of October. How do you, what, what did you see on that day and how do you, I don't know if explain is the right word because it's so difficult to explain something like that, uh, but what are your thoughts on it? What, what, how do you uh, uh, see it and view what we saw on October 7th? Well, you know, most of my comments, I think, are fairly obvious. It was utter horror and revulsion. Um, this was not just a terrorist attack uh, and not just an action by a militant group. It was a deliberately uh, outrageous series of terrorist attacks, as outrageous as you can imagine. And when you see a terrorist group doing that, you know, generally, I think it's fair to assume that it's it's they're being outrageous because they want outrage. Um, it's provocation. Mm. Uh, and that also makes your heart sink because not only was this terrible tragedy on October 7, um, at least 1,200 lives lost directly uh, in Israel, 240-odd people taken hostage, um, but sort of you know, reverberating tragedy in Israel. But you could see what was coming for the people of Gaza, who didn't deserve mm. it, who don't deserve it. Um, um, Hamas was, was bringing the war home to an area where they feel they got an upper hand. And in their calculation, not only do they control the physical domain, um, they're in a mind space where... 
uh, high levels of deaths, whether it's from their own members or from civilians who don't support them, um, uh, are not just to be accepted but almost almost welcomed because that mm. uh, makes their message more powerful. It helps drive a wedge in a way that they calculate will eventually uh, support them. Um, we saw this happen with 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. Uh, it takes a long way to play out. But eventually when we react with excessive force, particularly when we think that military means are going to solve problems, uh, it, it generally actually ends up with a, a series of unintended consequences that, that serve the interests of the extremists and generate other you know, splintering, cascading rounds of extremism and recruitment. So you could sort of see all of that happening as the news came in. You thought, this is terrible what's happening on that awful Saturday, but then it's going to be weeks and months and perhaps years of, of, of tragedy ahead, and indeed the last five weeks have borne that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's a the way you worded that, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree, and, I, and I've, I've put out a, a kind of thought bubble on that about Hamas having set a trap for Israel and Israel now walking into that or has been walking into that trap um you know completely uh, and therefore the uh, information war that's obviously being fought as well uh, is very much contested if not uh israel losing uh certainly in some parts of the world and perhaps not yet in the west uh as much as in other parts of the world but uh i suspect that only has so much runway uh, until that also starts changing. How, how are you seeing that? Do you see that the, the, the support for Israel, uh, from your perspective, is, is, is starting to wane? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky question, isn't it, and very important. We're talking um, today, it's Friday, 17th of November, and as of today, I think you'd say that um, if you could somehow score this in terms of who's getting the advantage, uh, I think Hamas has got the provo you know, provoked the response that it wants, and although it's obviously suffered, suffered losses, it probably feels itself ahead. Uh, I, I feel sorry for the IDF personnel who are going into a you know a mm. terrible operation. Um, but you'd have to say that that this program is not going well for Israel, and of course, it's really going tragically, awfully bad for the people of, of Gaza. Um, we're getting towards um, twelve thousand lives lost, and five five thousand of them being children, most of the others being women. Young people, um, and it goes without saying that you know there's a relatively small number of Hamas militants involved, but you know these are mostly people who, for for the last 16 years, have been trapped in the Gaza Strip with a government that they didn't choose. I mean, yes, mm. there was an election, but you know most of the population yeah. is young; they never voted. Uh, even when yeah, there was Hamas no subsequent won, election after that, yeah, that's the, right. The, even yeah. when Hamas won that 2006 election, um, it didn't have majority support. So. It's just a, a, a terrible um, state we're at the moment. I think perhaps because uh, international opinion is turning against not so much Israel, I think we need to, you know, it's sort of basics, but we do need to say this is not a case of do you support Palestine, do you support Israel? It's um, can we be critical of this government of Bibi Netanyahu? I think we mm -hmm. have to be. Um, mm -hmm. I've been critical because it's the most right-wing government in Israeli history and it's been mm -hmm. made lots of bad decisions which weakened Israel and, and, and made it easier for Hamas to launch that October 7th attack. But I also think that the uh, response, uh, and I don't blame the IDF for having to follow orders that they're given, but the orders that are given ultimately come from the government of the day. And I think, I think it's going to take a while before we figure out forensically um, everything that's going on. People talk about war crimes, genocide. I don't think that's very helpful language to speak of genocide. 
although I understand why people turn to it, but we do seem to see a callous disregard for the loss of civilian life, including the loss of, of children, um, and we do seem to see lack of precision um, and discretion in targeting. Uh, hmm. You know, we can break it down and talk about you know the way Israel justifies what it's doing, but as of today, Friday, seventeenth uh, of November. Um, this is not a successful military operation mm. in military terms. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about what the end game is. And I think in terms of the end game, surely it involves a political solution. Surely it uh, can only be justified in terms of peace for the people of Israel and, and Palestine. Uh, it's not It's not going in the right direction there. Uh, mm. So, you know, I think there is a tide turning against the government uh, in the international community against the government of, of, of Bibi Netanyahu. I think there's also a tide turning against Western leaders who haven't been very skillful um, in the way they've communicated their position. I, I would like to believe that the Biden administration is working very hard to constrain what the Netanyahu administration does and to try and turn this thing in a better direction. But the perception for many Americans and for others looking at the Biden, uh, Biden White House is that they're just one-sided. They're siding with Israel. They're not being sufficiently critical. The same thing is being said in Australia of the Australian government, yeah. the UK government, etc. Um, you have some governments taking a you know a stronger, more clear cut position. Belgium, for example, mm. uh, has has been come out very clearly. France, and you know, for once, is actually ahead of the curve and is uh, um, is saying uh, more nuanced and thoughtful things. Um, but I do think there is a desire to try and stop this human tragedy that's occurring. Um, there's been this debate over: do we talk about ceasefire yeah. or a humanitarian pause? I can understand the argument for saying that the military threat posed by Hamas has to be, well, first of all, the hostages have to be rescued, released. Uh, the military threat has to be dealt with so that Hamas no longer poses an immediate military threat. Can't eliminate it, but you can sort of deal with the threat. And then you need to set up the conditions for a different administration in the Gaza Strip. You finally need a um, political solution that has justice and is durable. Otherwise, you've got nothing. Uh, at the moment, everything is going in the wrong direction. and so. Mm -hmm. I think Hamas is winning in, in this sort of short account and yeah. Israel is losing. And I'm sad for that. I'm, I you know, grieve for the people of, of Gaza, of Palestine, yeah. but also, you know, my position, I think, was, which is a position that many people who look at this take is that we've got, you know, roughly 7 million Jewish Israelis, you know, roughly 7 million um, uh, Palestinians in Israel, in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, neither of those two large communities are going anywhere. You know they're 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 staying there, and they're going to have to live with each other. Of course, I've said two communities. It's more complicated. You've got Christians and and, and Jews and Muslims and and Druze and lots of people who are, aren't particularly religious in their personal life. Um, lots of different perspectives, backgrounds, but basically, these two communities, each of roughly similar size, um, are not going to leave. They've got nowhere to go. They've both got a claim on on a homeland. Uh, they've both got past injustices. The the Jews are dealing with this collective memory of the Holocaust, which haunts, you know, down through the generations. Mm -hmm. The Palestinians, uh, the 1948 Nakba, and sort of a sense that there's been waves of Nakba of, of disaster since, including what some people foolishly are calling the Gaza Nakba, sort of welcoming it. And they fear being driven out of homes that they'll never return to. Of course, most people in Gaza come from a background of, of mm -hmm. being refugees. They came to Gaza because they came from somewhere else and they lost their home somewhere else. So, uh, 
that's just an understandable fear in that sense. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a, yeah. Abs- it's horrible absolutely. to watch. And, and I think if you know, if we're if we're trying to be decent human beings, um, uh, you know, one uh, Yiddish word that always resonates with me because I think it's it's so deep in terms of practical meaning for how we live is is we should you know try and be uh, mensch, try and be decent human beings, and that means feeling equal compassion for everyone and thinking through what does it take to get something where people have the justice and the peace that they need to get on with their lives. Um, mm. And you could see it, you know, you could see a future, you have to see a future in which, you know, Gaza could become a, 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 stri- a, a thriving region, part of a Palestinian state, living peacefully with Israel. But lots of has got to change before that's possible. You know, mm. and it seems mm. naive to talk about this where we are right now, but, you know, what other way is there out of this human tragedy? So, yeah, I do think we need a humanitarian pause to or seriously humanitarian pauses to allow food and medicine um, and uh, water and and uh, other vital supplies into Gaza and to help people get to safer places. But I can see that the military operation in some form will need to go on. Um, it can't go on as it's currently been going on. That's just not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'll leave it for future studies to look at whether there have been war, war crimes or not. But there's certainly not been military success in any way that can be justified in military terms. And it's certainly not something that can be justified in terms of international law yeah. and um, humanitarian outcomes. And it actually, you know, is not justifiable in terms of where Israel needs to get to for its own peace and security. Yeah, I mean, the wonderful summary. And there's so many threads that are, we could pick out from there. But the first thing I want to touch on is um, you made the point that Israel justifies this somehow. Um, and then perhaps more crucially, it is countries like the US, Australia, UK, who then also justified somehow. How are we able to justify this? And especially when it's not even, I mean, it, it is still, hap- still happening in Ukraine that Russia is decimating uh, civilian areas that we are condemning writ large as a global community, maybe not global, but certainly as a Western community. But in this instance, when we're watching perhaps even greater uh, attrition of infrastructure and human life, uh, in proportion to the size of uh, you know Gaza versus Ukraine, but we're somehow letting it slide. So, firstly, how is Israel justified what it's doing? Uh, but then, more pressingly, to the Western audience at least, how does the West do it? I think we've got to break down what's actually happening. I mean, uh, we. Uh, are trapped by binary thinking in this regard. You know, do you support Palestine? Do you support Israel? Yes. Um, yeah. Does Israel have a right to defend itself, etc.? Yeah. Um, is this the fault of Hamas? It's not binary. I mean, yes, Hamas mm. Hamas provoked this current round on October 7th with a deliberately outrageous series of terror attacks. Mm-hmm. Of course, Hamas hasn't come out of a vacuum. That, that, that situation, you know, there's a whole long backstory there that we need to unpack. It's not binary. Mm. Uh in, in terms of uh, Israel's right to self-defense, yes, every nation, every sovereign nation has a right to self-defense. And more than that, Israel has an obligation to defend itself, to look after its people. I think the problem is what it's doing is not good for its self-defense and is, is not working towards medium and longer term good. And in the short term, uh, I, I think there's a serious question of you know whether there is war crimes or excessive um, indiscriminate military force. I know that that has to be resolved technically. We need to have all the evidence. We are in the middle of an information war, not just fog of war, but deliberate you know, yeah. um, exchanges of disinformation from 
all the all the sides. But you can't say uh, that when you've got near on twelve thousand people dead uh, and five thousand of them are children, uh, that that is somehow proportionate to the the threat posed and somehow is a price that needs to be accepted. It's a very for, different for a military sport. objective, and that's yes, the, the, the that, that's the yeah. the debate is, is is so confused about proportionality, in my view, because people are talking about you know eye for an eye. Well, no, that's not proportionality is to achieve a military end state. So is the the cost you're paying for the lives of civilians worth the military success and ultimately achieving a just peace worth it? Not is it a, you know does it meet the eye for an eye? Which, sorry to interrupt you, but it's just a, a point that I feel like I need to pick up on because no, there's absolutely. so much confusion confusion about that outside. And, and you know, of course, there's a lot of discussion at the moment, and and you know, I, I've listened to international lawyers speak about this, and I find their their line convincing. You know, the line is that uh, for many uh, international law experts that that although um, when you are faced with a situation that Israel is faced with um, and you have to go into a territory like Gaza and you have to go after a group like Hamas, yes, they are using human shields. Yes, they are uh, hiding behind infrastructure like hospitals, although, as we know with the Shifa, it's, it's not really clear exactly what's what. Yeah. Um, I think, I think um, Israel faced a massive intelligence failure with the October 7th attack partly because they misunderstood Hamas and um, Hamas was able to use that, you know, sort of um, uh, great, um, you know, magic sleight of hand trick of, of distraction and deflection. Uh, and I think perhaps that's happened with, with the IDF's operational intelligence. They think that Hamas is operating one where, you know, they, they say Hamas has got a headquarters at Ashifa Hospital. Um, it's likely that, that Hamas is deliberately... Um, playing with them to make them look foolish and undermine their credibility. But that aside, even if, you know, you, you find a location, Hamas is there, civilians are there, uh, international law, as it's being explained, uh, requires some really compelling cases before you you start to use force in, in that setting. Hmm. Uh, and it's not, you know, there's no sort of binary, yes, you can do it, no, you can't do it. It's a constant sort of assessing of, of hmm. when, you know, when, when can you... Um, use this weapon in this way, um, the, you know, Western coalition involvement in the global war on terrorism saw lots of mistakes made, and, and I think lots of war crimes. But having said that, there was a lot of work going into, okay, we've got a drone in place, do we launch a Hellfire missile or not? And then who is in the convoy? You know, what civilian lo- loss of life? Well, the, the, there, was a, there has been a lot of work going into that, and yet mistakes mm. were still made. Yeah. I think there's, yeah. under, under pressure, the IDF is not, you know, is not... Um, exercising enough uh, restraint when it comes to uh, considering the impact on, on civilian lives. And, of course, you know, that's the focus of, of um, intense um, pressure in war. Um, but the instruments of war are means to an end. The means to an end, it, it's a political end. That's, that's, that's not just because politics is nice to talk about, not just because we care about justice, but Israel will not have peace and security without a just political solution nor will the people of, of Palestine both equally deserve it. Uh, yes, there's a time when you use military instruments, but when it comes to terrorist provocations, generally this is when the terrorists win and we lose, and that's what appears to be happening at the moment in Gaza. So hmm. I think uh, I think we'll learn more um, and it'll be you know in a better position to, to make judgments of the exact nature of mistakes, but clearly mistakes are being made. Yeah. Um, I particularly like the fact that you keep 
re- reinforcing the point that it's about you know it, it has to be a political solution. And, and again, you know, our beloved Clausewitz will tell us that. And, and I and I sort of uh, want to say Clausewitz in, in air quotes because his, his his quotes are thrown everywhere, and we keep mm. talking about it, but it doesn't seem to register when it matters that it is about politics you know that that war is an extension of politics and therefore we need to come back to politics uh, because as you rightly point out there's seven seven million roughly on both sides and neither side will expel the other uh, you know completely uh, to have a homogenous society whatever that might look like uh, so therefore there has to be a political solution lest we keep uh, this cycle uh, of killing uh, uh, going to indefinitely. Uh, if I can, I'd really like to focus on Hamas, and particularly with your expertise on Islamic thought. Can you try to explain, at least you know, to me and to our audience, what is jihadism in its concepts and how does that differ to Islamism? Because we keep hearing these words uh, almost interchangeably, but if, if my uh, understanding is correct. There is there, there are differences, uh, and we should we should be very careful when we talk about one versus the other. Uh, so perhaps you can just take a moment to, to to hone us in on that, and where does Hamas really fit in? Yeah, I think it's a really critical point, uh, Maz, because as I said, there was an intelligence failure, a series of intelligence failure, clearly on October seventh that that meant the Israelis were caught, Israelis were caught by surprise. One of the key elements of the intelligence failure was not just that they weren't paying attention, that they were discounting reports that um, Hamas was mobilising, and not just that they relied too much on um, AI-controlled automatic machine guns that were knocked out, as it turned out, by Hamas drones, um, that they had taken you know force strength away from the Gaza Strip and focused mm. on the West Bank. Mm. All of those were mistakes. But a big mistake was they said, and this is the, you know, the danger of groupthink when it comes to intelligent, uh, intelligence analysis, that Hamas has neither the capacity nor the intention, critically not the intention, to attack. You know, Hamas is focused on the business of running the Gaza Strip and it has political power and that's what it wants. And the reasoning, of course, is that Hamas had come out of, uh, it's a movement um, linked to the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which is the source of of much of contemporary modern uh, political Islamist thought and social movements, and that it... You know, Hamas is not it's not an Al Qaeda or Islamic State type of group that's come from that base of, you know, originally thinking uh, in terms of Islamist politics uh, derived from uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, but then moving on to a an obsessive focus on provoking a war um, in the name of jihad, so that the whole system could be toppled and you can put in place a new system. with the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist groups around the world, including um, ones that are operating in Asia and including ones in South Asia that that, that draw heavily on um, uh, Dioband um, thought coming out of um, uh, Dioband Madrasa and Dioband itself in India and Dioband Madrasa in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, there are strong parallels. That there is this focus in political uh, Islamist thought of saying we need to be in charge of of politics because we need to control law because we believe that the right kind of law, which is our understanding of Islamic Sharia law, if we apply that, that solves problems. That's how you deal with crime. It's how you deal with poverty. That's how you get the utopia that we all all want. I mean, Mm. it is utopian romantic thinking. Mm. Um, Mm. But for those who follow that path, it's, it's about political means. So I'm not saying that they're ardent Democrats. I mean, very often they're happy to... um, in the, in the words of um, of the uh, very tricky um, 
Prime Minister, previously President Erdogan, uh, they're happy to ride that 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 trolley car, that tram, uh, called democracy, and get off when they get to their destination. You know, they're not mm. they're not wedded to democracy. Yeah. Uh, having said that, though, they are generally playing by the rules of the system, trying to build up their base. They they do lots of work, which is done for political reasons, but also done for reasons of conviction in terms of social welfare of um, looking after communities. Um, there's much about what Islamist groups do that, that needs to be recognised as, as, as having social support because it's meeting social needs mm. and um, also involving people, I think, are often motivated by real idealism and, and trying to do what they, they understand to make things better. Uh, of course, when, uh, when there was a great crackdown on the first generation of the Muslim Brotherhood, when uh, Saeed Qutb was executed by the Egyptian authorities in 1966, he could have gone into exile in Saudi Arabia, followed his brother Muhammad. He didn't. He stayed. As a result, um, what was hanged became a martyr. Uh, Muhammad Qutb um, and other Muslim Brotherhood members who had gone into exile in Saudi Arabia went through a strange process in which uh, elements of Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood um, Islamist thought were mixed with elements of um, extreme Wahhabi thought, but also other political concerns, which gave the foundation of what became Al-Qaeda, of course, which wouldn't have occurred the way it occurred were it not for an opportunity space in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda had mm. had some action in, in Sudan and, and um, uh, had searched around to try and find a place for itself inside the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, in the end found an opportunity to grow and develop in, in Afghanistan. That's where we think of all of these modern uh, Salafi jihadi movements coming from. Of course, Islamic State's a spin-off of Al-Qaeda, as we know, mm. coming out of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, the one of the great intelligence mistakes with uh, behind October seventh is the assumption that Hamas was simply an Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood style uh, movement. I mean, austere to the point of. I mean, we, we do know that it has a long history of uh, ruthlessly persecuting its enemies and those that it thought might represent a threat. So mm. nothing nice and soft and cuddly about this group. Throwing people off buildings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what we thought of them as being differently focused than a group like Islamic State because they already had their state. They sort of had their Islamic State in the in, in, in the Gaza Strip. They didn't call it a caliphate, but that's sort mm. of how it was set up. And, you know, they were getting some success, getting um, support from uh, across the Gulf region, from Qatar and beyond in terms of business deals. So the Israelis said to themselves, well, you know, our strategy works. We've got this strip locked up on the outside. They're busy on the inside. Um, we can sort of manage this. We can contain it. Um, mm. There was mm. that you know awful expression of mowing the grass to speak about mm. routine sort of crackdowns to you know regulate and control the threat of extremism. Uh, what they weren't expecting was that Hamas would behave in just the same way that Islamic State behaved mm. uh, when it was expanding and, and laying the foundations for its caliphate when it went to Mosul, for example. Um, of course, a difference is I don't think Hamas was, you know, had any operational plans to take territory. It was trying to provoke a response mm, mm. Um, because it wasn't happy with the status quo that it had in the Gaza Strip. It wanted something more. It wanted the IDF to come into the Gaza Strip. It wanted there to be uh, a, a great confrontation which would cause them to lose a lot of uh, their own force strength but would ultimately see a wedge driven that would see uh, their movement gain support. What they hoped to gain beyond what they already had in the Gaza Strip is hard to understand rationally, but but I think some of the people behind the attack 
were looking to go beyond Gaza to inf influence the West Bank. Uh, some even um, were, were looking to influence the greater Middle East. Of course, mm. Hamas has received financial sponsorship from Iran mm. and um, military equipment. Of course, it was well equipped with that October 7th attack, much much better equipped than we could have imagined. Uh, so there's a, it's a large game at play. We still don't know whether those Iranian handlers, the sponsors of Hamas, uh, were written into uh, the mm. communications ahead of the attack. Probably not. Um, I say probably not because otherwise Israel would have by now attacked Iran, but thought that Iran, um, mm. you know, that, that somewhat, was somewhat somehow behind it. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, there is this great concern about this conflict in the Gaza Strip spreading beyond. That's why we have uh, two U.S. aircraft carrier flotillas in the East Mediterranean, pretty extraordinary situation. Um, but there's a great degree of anxiety about this, you know, spreading and going beyond. But there is this mystery that's um, led to this intelligence failure that we thought Hamas was one thing, it behaved in a very different way. So it, it behaved, it used the tactics of Islamic State. That's why mm. some people are saying Hamas, ISIS, same thing. Well, it's not the same thing. It's a very different beast. Mm. But it did use those awful tactics. Um, but for the reasons that Al-Qaeda used the 9-11 uh, uh, terrorist attack method because it wanted to provoke a response. And that that wasn't anticipated. It, it, it doesn't make sense that Hamas would do that because it, it stands to lose so much and put at risk. And, of course, mm. it, you know the, the people of Gaza stand to lose, but that perhaps wasn't a consideration for them. They were prepared yeah. to pay that price on, on behalf of the people of well, Gaza. It's part of the plan, obviously. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's something strange here. Um, yes, I think it's still the case that Hamas, the, the political body, was basically is basically an Egyptian Brotherhood style Islamist outfit that was concerned with power and running stuff and mm. having its own state. Uh, but somewhere um, in the military leadership, there was an appetite for more and a lot of satisfaction, lack of satisfaction with with just that political status quo. Uh, that doesn't mean that um, everything we thought we knew about Hamas is is wrong, and that's that's critically important because when when the dust settles, there will have to be negotiation with people who have had some involvement in this, not not mm. the militant leaders, mm. uh, but people who were signed up and on the Hamas payroll, which seems like mm. an, a, a crazy thing to say. But, you know, where, where I'm coming to is um, we need to be cautious of not making the mistake of debathification. In mm. Saddam Hussein's uh, Iraq, any middle-class technocrat, uh, engineer, a professional was a member of the Ba'ath Party because they had to be. You didn't get a choice, right? So you had to go along with the status quo. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is for most of the Middle East most of the time. Uh, in the Gaza Strip, yes, the hospitals are run by the health ministry, which is Hamas. Um, and there are people in the political uh, um, system who, who went right into the attack plans for October 7th who were then and perhaps in, the, in future will be focused just on, on political and administrative matters I don't think we can ever go back to having Hamas left in charge of the, uh, the Gaza mm. Strip in any form. Mm. But I do think out of 2.3 million people, um, for those who were, you know, making the place work and, and doing their best to make things work, and we see the, you know, literally heroic efforts of doctors and nurses in the, in the hospitals mm. under siege, mm. um, those people, uh, you know, will be needed to play some role in future administration. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it won't be under Hamas, uh, but we need to... You know, we need to be careful we don't make the mistake of, once again, thinking in binary terms that it's these guys are all with this group and this yeah. group is all this. Um, 
So I think we now have to say that Hamas is a mixture of competing factions, some of whom were really focused on this um, literally, um, uh, you know, Armageddon, end of time Mm. confrontation, which they thought would serve their end, just like Islamic State was, uh, just like Al-Qaeda was. And they're jihadists. They would be called, that's what we would understand as jihadists. uh, uh, Not just because they they describe jihad um, as a um, preemptive use of military force as opposed to a peaceful struggle, but because they believe that they can never achieve their end state without a military, um, not just military means, but a, a um, acceleration towards an end of time confrontation mm. that will change yeah. everything. Yeah, and I think that's a really an aspect that, that we, in the broadly speaking, secular West, that's rather distant to us to actually appreciate the fact that some of the commitment is so. I mean, to us it seems absurd, but you know they, they expect martyrdom, or you know that, that this life is merely transient in order to achieve martyrdom, uh, to then you know live in eternity uh, as as a martyr, as a hero uh, for your people. And I think for us that's something that's that's a little bit distant because obviously we value this life uh, because this is the only one we can say with any certainty that we have and that we can enjoy. Uh, anything beyond that is 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 a hypothetical guess at best. Uh, whereas the, the kind of fundamental principles of jihadism, and correct me if I'm wrong, or I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, is that it is such a deeply embedded philosophy, thought, uh, uh, or, or way of thinking about the world that this is merely a transient path towards an eternity far greater than anything that can be right now. Uh, is, that how, is that broadly accurate as to what jihadism is? That, that is broadly accurate, Maz. I mean, of course, we're talking about a product of the second half of the 20th century. So it's a modern movement. Right. Um, okay. That, you know, one of the mistakes yeah. that commentators make regularly is they talk in terms of centuries-old battles, um, yeah. you know, of, of, of Sunni versus Shia, uh, of uh, Muslims against Jews. Uh, those simplistic descriptions are never historically accurate. I mean, mm. you know, you don't have to go back very far in the Middle East when you had cosmopolitan cities yeah. Very diverse populations, large Jewish, whether in Iran, Afghanistan, or elsewhere. <laughs> exactly, and, and there is yeah. no reason why people can't live happily side by side. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that the you know the ways it happened under say the Ottoman Empire are perfect. You wouldn't want to go back to the, that kind of divided society, but um, it, it's a reminder that it's not given that people automatically have to you know be at war with each other mm. or even to hate each other, uh, and that this particular um, Excessive uh, focus on you know cult of martyrdom and and um, everything being about um, making it into the next life and achieving salvation that doesn't reflect mainstream understanding of Islam either. So that's not the way that Islam has understood the last fifteen centuries. That's not the way um, uh, most Muslim scholars today, whether they're conservative mm. or, yeah. or, or progressive, understand things. Whichever. Uh, Mazhab school of thought they come from, whether it's Sunni or Shia, it, it's a handful of people, um, and the handful include cynical political operators, like, for example, the Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps in, in in Iran, who most of them are probably driven more by political power yeah. and 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 profit than they are by religious conviction. Although some of them have deep religious convictions, and on the Sunni side, um, yes, there are people uh, who have deep convictions who are drawn up in, in, in jihadist groups, um, the 
power of individual thinkers who have a vision is is probably um, uh, misunderstood because most people join for reasons of of community of of you know social means. They they, they join their older brother, their uncle. They avenge their father's death. They respond because of pressure from uh, economic circumstances. You know, I, I, I don't want to gloss over this. So, uh, so, so, so before you go much further on that train of thought, which is absolutely where I was hoping to go next, uh, because w- what we're talk- touching on now is the process of radicalization, mm. uh, which I want to hone in, uh, especially through your uh, a, a model that we discussed previously. But I think it's also relevant now, and it's relevant for our new listeners who hadn't uh, heard our previous discussion to have that visual. Uh, model in their mind. So the push-pull personal factors, the triple P model, uh, because I think that's where you're already starting to talk to that. So, so, so maybe if we can just uh, just uh, uh, go to that point uh, as to what or how you explain radicalization, perhaps through this model. That's right. Now, so um, you know, we're talking about radicalization into violent extremism. So yep. you know, we, you know, we don't we're not talking about radicalization into an alternative lifestyle that may save the planet um, or even just religious piety that may save me from, you know, substance abuse or something and yeah. make me a better father and better husband. Or become a vegetarian or, or exactly. any of these kinds of uh, – uh, they could be yeah. broadly termed as even good. Uh, That's right. Uh, to be, to yeah. be radical in a, you know, sort of literal sense, um, uh, understood sociologically and, and, and philosophically, is, is to go back to, to the roots of things, the radix, the basics, and, mm. and change things completely, root mm. and branch change. Mm. That can be good. It can be bad. Um, but uh, when you justify that effort, um, when you say that the ends justify the means, I have to use violence to get there. That's mm. that's the problem. And, mm. and violence doesn't have to actually involve literally killing people. It can involve hate speech and inciting uh, hate uh, to divide society, co- to corrode uh, relations. Um, but that's you know broadly under the the, the um, uh, rubric of of um, people behaving badly because they say that they're justified because the ends are so important that they have to use these means. Mm. Uh, but when people make that move, um, generally it's a social process and whether it's because of being pushed into it because of really grim and terrible circumstances, you know, you're a, a poor farmer in a valley in Afghanistan, the Taliban are coming back every month looking for their money, um, the Americans turn up for a while and they go away, but the, the Taliban keep coming back. Uh, and then you have some personal tragedy um, and you just feel I've got no choice but to join these people. It's what other choice can I do? This is it's not good, but it, I've got nothing mm. better. That's being pushed into something because of personal circumstances. Um, you know, for a kid in a, in a comfortable suburban home in Australia or, or, you know, the UK or US, it's often very different. It's more... Um, being pulled towards something because of the, the desire for adventure, for meaning, primarily for acceptance. A group that will accept me and and call me a brother or a sister and uh, give me a sense of purpose. Um, you know, when you're in your teens and early 20s, that's really, really powerful stuff. Um, but once again, it manifests in a, in a social way. So you can be pushed by circumstance, pulled by the attraction of, of joining the group and, and, and this idea of you know, being part of, you know, the, the freedom fighter um, mm. rebels mm. who are changing the world. Um, and uh, it plays out differently whether you're stuck in an insurgent situation, say in Afghanistan or Sudan or, or other parts of the world where these guys are in charge, or whether you're travelling across the globe to join a group 
Um, you know, going back to Gaza and, and thinking about what happens in the future, for kids growing up with the trauma of what's happening now, um, what's going to be playing? There's going to be a lot of sort of push towards joining certain groups or going along with certain groups uh, or not pushing back against them, at least. Uh, mm. There's going to be a pull of the sense that this is the one way we can change things. Um, so uh, there's a complex mix of things going on, but I, I suppose the big point I would make is that generally it plays out in a social uh, network way, starting with, you know, I may be looking at a particular series of videos on YouTube. That won't make me a radical. But mm. when you call me on, on messaging um, apps and say, look, Greg, you, you know, you've got some questions, let's talk, and we talk, and I find that you emails are being really nice to me and you respect me. The first time I've had this happening in months or maybe years, mm. uh, maybe I've lost somebody who previously did that for me, but, but you're there. Then I start to form a relationship with you. You say, let's take this conversation somewhere else that's more secure, and then you introduce me to your group and your ideas. It starts with that friendship. Uh, mm. Now, you might be grooming me in a very cynical fashion, or maybe it's a genuine friendship. Either way, that, that friendship, and for me, that sense of belonging to this new family, having this new friends, that's what takes me in. And, mm. Um, mm. you know, it, it sounds trite to talk about the battle for hearts and minds, but that's what really, if, if battle for hearts and minds means anything, it's, it's playing out at this level. So we need to always think about... If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.